this show is very explicit. So if you're under the age of, I guess, 13, really, in America, or 12 in some countries, and I will actually really, if you're under the age of 18, you probably still should not listen to this show. But legally, it's fine. Also, uh, share. Do share this show. And try to share it with a mature audience. Thank you.
You are listening to sad star seeds, angels, savant syndrome, with your host, the Mystic Man. Thank you for joining. Did you know that you can leave a message to be on the show? That's right, you can. If you go to the show's description on whatever platform you're listening to this on, and mind you, it does host on many platforms. The SAS podcast, Starseeds Angels Savant Syndrome, hosts on many platforms, as most podcasts do these days. Well, if you look in the description for the show, you'll find a link to message us. You can leave a a audio recording for the show and be on air, not live, but you can ask a question or leave a statement. Heck, this show is explicit and it's rated explicit. So you can even swear. You can swear at me if you want. And roast me. And that's perfectly fine. I welcome anybody to say anything that they want. And that's freedom of speech. How it should be. I I don't know if there's a time limit on the audio recording that you're allowed to uh, record with. But uh, try to keep it a little bit short. I'd say at least under like half an hour, if that's okay with you. But yes, please do message and be on the show. You can do so anonymously. Perfectly fine.
that I could find it I will find my way Gotta keep looking If it's not fair Gotta go again Wish to get over it Cause when I look aside She's always by my side She guides me With a sign And I Actually, I don't ever use a screen on my window, ever. No screen for me. And no censorship either, thank you. Actually, I am I'm one of the people that really gets censored a lot. I will not lie. Way before this even happened, I was getting censored. Fun, very fun, right? I've had Oh, well, I think it was, I can't remember the exact number, but it was like 60-something episodes of this show that you're listening to right now, deleted. Luckily, I guess the person who deleted it did not know, because it was from my account. And, uh, you know, I mean, I've got, you know, hunches, but then I don't like to think that things are personal sometimes. Sometimes things are just like, you know... Uh, content-wise, which would um, be another kind of conspiracy theory. <laughs> but, I, yeah, no, I don't like to try to point fingers, you know. Before anything, I always try to assume that everybody is innocent. That's a huge thing. Uh, I have said a lot on this show, and I like to remind people to consider... Now, of course, it's not always true, but what if it is? Right. Consider, think to yourself, a time. Do you remember a time where you, in your will, and your choice, chose something specifically evil? You know, that you knew was evil and you had no excuse for. Now it happens, sure. You know. I have a friend. A good friend, actually. Well, he made some dumb decisions back in the day. And he's been doing a long, long sentence. He was just a kid, too. Back then. But his decision was gang affiliation. And 
multiple homicide. And he did drugs. Drugs that actually I've never done before. Which is a rare thing. No, I'm kidding. There's so much billions of drugs out there. My lord. We've got a literally like a a a a, a I mean, that, that's what the CBC, that's what the Bill and Gates Foundation is. That's what the whole thing is about. I mean, not specifically about that, but I mean, I'm just saying, you know, hey, you know, I mean, like, <laughs> I mean, kind of, yeah, you know, I mean, it's money, right? That's how this shit goes. Duh. When you create a system designed, literally, to have everybody aiming for an invisible irony. <laughs> well, well that, that's a hypocrisy, you know? When you're aiming for an invisible irony, that means that you don't see the irony, and that means that the irony is your actions in the aim itself. For instance, well, look at, look at the world. You've known it, you've seen it. And you've probably heard me ranting about it if you've known me long enough. I've been saying the same things since, since the, since the first Zeitgeist film, since before there was a second one, since before there was a third one. But from the first one, I won't, I won't uh, take the credit away from that. It was actually the first Zeitgeist film from Peter Joseph that woke me up. It was hard to watch. It was very hard to watch. It was like something within me just had to look away. I didn't want to finish that film at all. It's a very long documentary. You know, if you've never watched it before, I can't remember. I think it was like two and a half hours long. Or am I, am I tripping? I don't, I don't know. If it's like an hour long, then <laughs> it felt long. That's for sure. It took me eight times, maybe more. I'm pretty sure eight was the number. Eight times ever to finish that film. You know? And I, like a normal person, could have just, you know, took in my cognitive dissonance and thought it was intuition and never looked at it again. I could have just taken my cognitive dissonance that I was feeling and thought that it was, you know, I thought it was my heart. And just walked away. But that was the key moment. Well, moments. Because after I forced myself to sit down and watch that film that I specifically did not want to watch, I couldn't figure out why. Well, I woke up and I saw the whole world a little different. Nowadays, we have um, a lot of people that have been programmed, conditioned, and I'm not talking about the normal, normal, you know, um, practical people. I'm talking about the light workers. Entirely work scene. You guys fell for a trap. You did. I'm sorry. And I'm sorry for how I've 
been so aggressive in trying to tell you guys because I know it's no excuse, but it's hard not to have an excuse, right? You know, because to me it's a reason. You guys attacked me every time I tried to. I tried to say, I tried to let you know, warn you guys. I was attacked every single time. I was painted as the villain, as the bad guy, as the person that's just trying to argue because he likes to argue when it's actually really because I was trying to save everybody. And I guess that could be considered a, uh, what do you call it, a hero complex, whatever the fuck. But, you know, that that's a really stupid thing to make a label of complex over because then it creates a barrier where a person would think twice before trying to help people and save people that's just stupid that shouldn't even be a name for a complex in fact most of the psychological complexes if you look at it even the things that we blame for as narcissistic it's like okay one of the things uh, you know they, they call it a um, you know a, a key aspect of the narcissist is they'll try to love bomb you and it's all fake don't trust it and now okay check it out right first off have you ever done that have you ever experienced that have you as in you specifically you listener have you ever loved bomb somebody and was completely faking it i mean maybe it exists i'm just saying i've never done that i've always been legit you know, like fucking when I, maybe I'm expressive in my love, and maybe sometimes, you know, I just love everybody in a, in a very expressive way. <laughs> hey, you know, it's the Libra South now thing, you know, I've got a lot of um, past lives with, with relationships that were successes, but I lost myself in it, I lost my identity in it, and I didn't stand up for myself. So this lifetime, I've got to regain my sense of self, self-awareness, self-understanding. But I did have a lot of love, and I bring that forth with me. And you can look that up, South Node Libra. Look it up. That's what it'll tell you online. <laughs> it's hilarious how um, methodically, mathematical, and scientific all of the astrology is behind all that but in any case let's go back to what i was saying with my path and our paths as in how to know if you're on your path and how to be on your path now i i would say that there's there's really like you know there's a lot of gray area and then there's like the pinpoint on your path and the thing is is that i mean the odds of a person like literally being pinpoint on their path is like one in one. Jesus in like, you know, 2000 years or so. <laughs> a Jesus in age, you know, a, 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 a astrological age, right? That's what it is, literally. And um, other than that, you know, that's a freaking monstrous, like huge, insane amount of odds you know, to be on that. But other than that, I mean, basically, we're all kind of just 
led this gravity, you know, we're going to go towards that direction because all it really takes is following your heart. That's all it takes. You know? Now, what that means specifically sometimes gets us in trouble because we don't stand the meaning. Because we have meanings and values that are bad values and don't mean anything. They don't mean what we want it to mean. Not in reality, not in practicality. Let me give you an example. Okay, you meet somebody and they're beautiful just in the way they are, their way about them. Barely talk to them. But you are in love. Everything about them just glows the way they move, sways with the world, and you are a big stutter. Don't know what to do, don't know what to say. Somehow, because you can't help it, you go and you talk to them. And they talk back. And they like you too. And you fall in love. Together. Six months later, you guys are arguing all the time. There's no love. You're swearing, insulting each other, totally blaming each other for things that nobody did. You know, because you guys think that each other knows the intent of the other, but you don't. And it's both sides uh, hypocrisy. Did I call it right? Was that was that on point? Was that what it was? <laughs> was that what it is? Was that how it always is? No, not always, because I mean we do have successful relationships. You know, it, it it it's true. Okay, they exist. If you've never had one, then I would call you a liar. Maybe you should open yourself up a bit to consider that maybe it was your judgment. And you can take that judgment off right now. You can see that, hey, you still love them. And it was a good relationship. Now, of course, not all relationships, right? Some relationships just suck. They just, you just want to die. Like, you just want to, you want to, like, just get up and go and, like, forget the whole thing. It happens. You know, hey, it's nobody's fault. But if we can, in the moment, before it gets like that, just take responsibility. Because we've learned from the past. Because we've seen ourselves. We've humbled ourselves in those moments to see our flaws and we've listened not to our egos the filter of our ego when a person's talking down on us but actually listened to their heart and saw that they were not attacking they were feeling attacked then we could see that they felt attacked and they were acting away because they value what we think, because they value our emotions too. And they value being seen for their true self, not the way that we thought, or judge, or blame the dumbass. Well, then it's direct empathy, isn't it? Because don't we all know what that feels like? I'm pretty sure I just undermined all the narcissism, but I don't know, because I don't, I don't, I can't say for sure. I've never met every single person in the world. 
so far I don't think I've ever had a true narcissist because um, I mean I, I can see to their heart and I can empathize and I can see that in their own ways you know I mean the zodiac is a wheel remember that you might have your ideology and your ideals on one side but that just means you're specifically blind to the other unless you either experience this other side or empathize excuse my neighbor he's got a loud farting car and I got a lot of hell's angels over here too with motorcycles so that might happen and I'm going to record anyways with my window open because it's a nice sunny day in any case yeah so acting in the moment as in when you're you see a argument arising or maybe it's already started you see a problem starting to get there you know somebody's annoyed with you because you haven't been listening and they're about to blow up humble yourself take the fall screw your pride and ego and your name and your your image that doesn't matter to them they're not looking at your image don't worry about the image it's hard I know I'm hey you know it's hard not to but if you do worry about the image I want to remind you that it's exactly the path that the narcissist gains excuses to do the things that they do look at it the narcissist is afraid that other people are talking bad about them so they talk bad first and they tell themselves oh well they're doing it too yep they're already doing it so I might as well do it first <laughs> okay that makes no sense sorry you know but neither does narcissism uh, neither does the actions it's always I mean it makes sense I can as in I can understand it because I felt those emotions and a couple times in my life I've done some things that I had I, I had to be called out on and realize like oh shit you know fuck I'm sorry I didn't mean it like I didn't even see that you know and that it happens to us because we get so caught up in our dramas and so caught up in our beliefs of what things are that sometimes we don't see what we are or how we're being actually it's really hard to do I mean essentially to see yourself you kind of got to be somebody else <laughs> you know I was just talking about that to a friend um, I think I've mentioned it before too that Adam didn't have a name until Eve was created and his name, Ish, came from her name, Isha. So when she was created, then he had a presence, he had a name that he, he could have, you know, which is a huge, huge thing if you look at it. And I explained it as in, um, if you uh, don't mind me getting esoterically mystical on you, I explained it as, this is why men have a need to be of service. They have a need to be at peace. The masculinity in us, it, it wants to, to be beneficial to, to the feminine. It wants to be not just seen as that, you know, it wants to be that, you know. It wants to be 
authentically appreciated for the work that it does. The man, every man in every relationship from the masculine energy, I mean, you know, sometimes men are, 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 are gay and they have feminine in them, so that, you know, but the, 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 there's masculine in all of us, right, you know, and the masculinity in us desires that, and it's, uh, I like to say it's a, uh, a just pride, like a just full pride kind of sense, because there's different kinds of pride, okay, but there's some pride that, that is just to have. You know, it's, it's rightful to have. In fact, it's it's freeing and empowering to have. It's like when you have a master painter and some little punk comes up and sees his painting and goes, that's crap. But he knows that he's, his work is a masterpiece. So he doesn't mind. Right? Now, if he didn't have that self-pride, well, he might quit. He might throw away the painting. He might believe the punk who was just having a bad day and didn't really mean it. But with self-pride, you have grounding. And it has to be a just pride, as in deserved. That's where the difference is. Now, I might sound like I'm trailing to you, but I'm not. I'm not. I'm going to swing back around. I just want you to know that these things are all going to line up as soon as we get to the next part, where I'm going to read to you a petition that I wrote. It's only got 10 signatures so far. One of those signatures is myself. But I believe it's a brilliant petition. And in the petition, I say, and lead through these aspects that I'm saying right now, because the relationship is the same dynamics in every sense, whether it's to self, to pet kitty cat, this fluff ball, to friends, to lover, to society, and to country, and to humanity relationship dynamics are the same now you know i mean they might amplify or you know um depending on the social situations and because it's all mixed together there's dynamics intertwining through it interdimensionally right you know and i mean then in the sense of like well you know if your wife is like cheating on you and then like your friends ask you out you know to go like drinking but also you're um you know, you're like on leave from the Navy, but you got to go back or something. You know, that's like multidimensional, right? You know, you got different aspects at play in those dynamics. So you get to account for them. But, you know, essentially, you know, if you've uh, treated one relationship really strongly a certain way, then it's going to be like that in the other relationships too. Not always, not always. And sometimes, you know, sometimes it's actually a, uh, a kind of kiltering uh, thing, you know, a balancing thing. And sometimes it's way off balance.
but it can be measured and it can be weighed and it can be seen. So having an idea of self, like who is the self? Who is, who is the I that you refer to when you say things like, I don't like this, or I don't believe you, or I love you. Who is the I, right? Now it seems kind of a ridiculous of a notion to even question course and this was actually a thing that I grew up with specifically annoyed of you know I always used to be annoyed of it because it seemed um, redundant really even the even the term self-discovery it seemed annoyingly redundant and I used to always you know logically combat it <clears throat> until I uh, came old enough to realize that I didn't know myself Took a lot of pain to get there, to admit and to see, and to want to learn myself. And I would say that it doesn't necessarily have to take pain. You don't, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to take pain. But I mean, if you got a lot of illusions and conditions, it's probably going to hurt a lot of times in different ways too. It's just how it is. Uh, pain is the burning away of illusion. Love is from the heart. Thoughts are from the mind. As my grandma said. And if this has been at all cryptic to you, just stay tuned. Things are about to get a little bit more sassy here. Star seeds, angels. Savant Syndrome, with your host, The Mystical Man. What a crazy time we live in, right? I hope everybody's doing very good, wherever you are. Let's try to take care of our families and our community. I know it can be very tough because we've just gone through the most cancer cell mentality age that humanity has ever gone through. Now let me explain the cancer cell mentality. It can be, I think, best described through um, Deepak Chopra's explanation of how a cell becomes a cancer cell. I love quoting him here because it's very, very symbolic. A cancer cell becomes a cancer cell, as in a healthy cell becomes cancerous, a tumor cell, by fear, by getting shocked and traumatized into fear. Now, that is not to say that the fear emotion is to blame. No, 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 no. So, the cell goes through either toxicity, malnutrition, or dehydration, or a combination of them, or all. 
then it gets traumatized into a fear-based mentality of greed. You see, every healthy cell shares. It only takes in enough to survive for the next several seconds from its surrounding neighbor cells. Unless, of course, it's been shocked by fear. Now, this is not the cell's fault, and it is not the fear to blame, mind you. Because the fear is a general reaction, it's a general response that is natural. If you feel like you're not going to receive the nutrients that you need, because you didn't receive the nutrients that you needed, then you're only reacting as you would, obviously. It becomes a thing of the whole. A thing of the responsibility of the whole. If you've ever heard the term, it takes a village. Which is more or less a uh, thing that my last name somewhat means. Because it does take a village to raise a child. It does take a village to marry a couple. It takes a village to bury their dead. properly, for all the above. See, these things, they become our cultures, they become our identities through our cultures. Through reverence and respect of the whole. Jesus put it a good way in the Gospel of Thomas. He said, Whoever shall blaspheme against the Son shall be forgiven, and whoever shall blaspheme against the Father shall be forgiven. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit and the Holy Ghost, some people call it different names, I like to call it the Divine Feminine, the Holy Mother God. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven on earth or in heaven. Now, this is a very interesting statement, right? Very interesting to say. It actually makes perfect sense. It's a very logical thing, really. It's completely practical, and you would really trip out. And I mean, I, I'm, I'm assuming, I'm assuming to know, and um, I don't really know for sure. I can't say I know for sure, but I do know that the way that Jesus talks in these parables, the, the styling of the lessons that he gives, there's a certain way to it. You see, I, it's obviously, well, when you read the Bible, when you read the New Testament, you can um, 
you can kind of empathize and when you put yourself in that situation, you can see that it's not his lessons. Those are the lessons that were taught to him. As he was in a scene, right? And he went through the training of the Essene, just as his mother did, and just as uh, John the Apostle did. Together, actually, him and John. Now, the Essene were some of the, the mystics, the mystic uh, secret society back then. And if you remember the time frame, right, if you've ever seen uh, the old Cleopatra movie with Caesar, well, you see, that's what was going on right then. Uh, right before, about 30, 40 years before Jesus was born, you had Caesar, who was running amok all throughout those lands. And you had Cleopatra, the first female to rule over Egypt by herself. She ended up uh, sleeping with her brother in order to ensure the power stays in the family because there were people that were threatening and um, trying to overturn her power. Of course, when her brother got old enough, he booted her, which goes into a huge immense story. Like, what happened was that she went to Caesar, who was in the neighborhood. He wasn't even trying to go and, and take over Egypt, because Egypt was such, he was in such turmoil at that point that, that he didn't care. He already, um, he already had uh, some of his soldiers burn down the library of Alexandria, the most famous library in the world at that point that had gathered all of the world's most amazing literature. And um, you, you can imagine for the Essene of that era, the, the amount of um, blame, anger, despair that all of their, their most prized possessions, all of, all of the gatherings of the most amazing literature from all around the world and, and teachings had been burned down by some ignorant militia. Caesar wasn't even there, you know. It was just some of his men. <laughs> That's something. Anyways. Yeah, and, uh, well, what happened, you know, this is before Jesus was born. Cleopatra went, and she had one of her servants wrap her up in a carpet, in a fancy carpet, and had her servant go to deliver it as a gift to Caesar. This way she could get past the guards. Because, I mean, it's, he was Caesar at that point, so he had all kinds of women. You know, he could have any woman. He, he did have multiple women that he just slept with, that, you know, and, uh, all the time. She was only 18. 
I believe it was. I might be wrong. She might have been like underage, but that's back then. You know, and he was like, I think, uh, in his mid forties. So yeah, what happened was, um, uh, she was delivered to his tent, to his uh, war tent, past the guards. Uh, the carpet was unraveled, and then out plopped her queen of Egypt, ready for sex. And they had sex. That's what it was. <laughs> Can you imagine that? She was prepared for sex. It was a presentation of herself as a gift of sex to Caesar in order for Caesar to, you know, uh, in order for her to use his power so that way she could regain her throne from her brother that booted her out. And they did, and she did. And, uh, yeah. And, um, yeah. Yep. So Caesar was the second husband, actually, because she was married to her brother first. And I believe they did have a kid. But in any case, after that, Egypt collapsed. Which is, uh, which is kind of why, you know, um, there's always been kind of like a taboo, kind of like a fear against uh, women in power. I believe it's a, a specifically ironic thing, going back to the beginning, you know, probably because God's a woman, but I'm, I'm just assuming. It would make sense. Yeah, yeah but, uh, like, if you go prior to that, you had Rata, right? And Rata, well, he was the first to create marriage. Before that, you had, in Egypt, everybody kind of just had a, a time when they would uh, meet up every, I think it was like every uh, three months, you know, the men and women would be assorted in, um, you know, systematically, you know, appointed to a person of the other sex, and they would have sex, and they would have be fun, you know, and, and if they got pregnant, you know, they had the baby and whatnot, and they, they cared for each other as a community, you know, it was a very ant-like, I guess you could say, or, you know, like that, um, but there was love. Barata invented marriage. And what I think that was wasn't long after that he ended up being the first person to break that law. And he ended up cheating on his wife with a young girl. And she was pissed, I'm sure. Uh, actually, the whole country of Egypt was pissed. And there was a huge political, what do you call it, um, you know, uh, political turmoil then too. So what it was, was the, the priests of the time were trying to tell the people and trying to persuade the people that the pharaoh, Rata, was not worthy anymore to to rule and that they should rule and you know 
yada yada, but he was raw to us, so, uh, you know, he handled that shit. But then, you know, fast forward, and you got another time when there's uh, female drama in the head of everything, and that was the end of Egypt. Egypt collapsed after that, and yeah, and yeah, <clears throat> we almost lost the entire history of Egypt, actually, after that, not even knowing how to read the um, hieroglyphs for a couple hundred years, that information was lost. entire city of Egypt was just abandoned. I think for a good 300 years it was abandoned completely. But um, that was, that wasn't, that was after, after the whole Jesus Caesar thing. And uh, mind you, remember, Caesar was still alive when Jesus was alive. And Jesus, in the in the New Testament was 30 years old, right? Now, well, Caesar was like, I think, 40, right? Mid-40, when he was doing the whoop de wop with Cleopatra. So he was pretty darn old, which doesn't go and fit with a lot of the, um, the history books, actually. The, the time frames seem very off. They, they don't mix together too well. Unless, of course... There's a discrepancy, of course, which obviously there is. So either the time frame of uh, of where we put Jesus is wrong, um, maybe possibly the time frame of how old Jesus was when when he uh, returned. You know, uh, we like to believe it was in his thirties. I think the Bible says, but maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was in his twenties. I know that uh, he was still a teenager, I believe, when in the Quran he was chased out of India. And yeah, isn't that something? They don't tell you that, right? Jesus was in the Quran. Apparently. I've never read it, you know, but um, that's what my dad says. Uh, please correct me if I'm wrong. But I heard that he's in the Quran and he gets chased out of India for uh, being a rascal trying to argue against their, um, you know, there, there was a city he was at, and they were sacrificing an animal, and um, he disagreed with it. In any case, that was a long story. I, I, I trailed there, but it's a good story, you know, and it's, um, it's an amazing time frame. For me, when I read the New Testament, the Bible in general, I was in awe. I just put myself there in, in mind and heart. And can you imagine? Can you imagine living then? Maybe you did. Maybe you were. Maybe we're reliving it right now, elementally. This is the turning of the age, isn't it? They usually say that with each turning of the age, 
there is one person that leads the former age out and one that leads it in. I would argue that this age right now probably has a lot more than one. Given that it's the age of the humanitarian, in astrology, when I look towards the 11th house, which is the house that Aquarius is, uh, that Aquarius rules, I, I imagine it being the full encompassment of the society, of the community, of the people, of the world. And really, it can, it can be said to be that, because uh, in the same exact ways that a, a person is an organism, well, an organization is also an organism. You know, we as a country are an organism. We as a world, as a planet, are, are an organism. Right now, I mean, people like to say we're like the cancer, or the, no, not the cancer, but the, the virus, the disease of the planet, but I differ. I would say we're more like the mitochondria. You know, if you didn't know, uh, mitochondria, which are the powerhouses of all of our human cells, they have their own DNA, because they are a separate life form. They live symbiotically with us, within all of our cells. And actually, they can only be passed down from the mother, which is a, which is a thing that we do in um, genealogy when we're testing DNA and, uh, and ancestry. We have to... Um, we go by the mitochondria to follow the, the mother's passing on of it. And that's an interesting thing to think, right? The mitochondria. It's a totally different organism. Yet it powers the cell. Our human cells wouldn't be able to do what they do without it. They live symbiotically with all of the other factors of the cell and factories of the cell. moseying on along with it. It's a very, very uh, comfortable relationship. We could be that too for the planet. And um, it would be a thing that would be not only harmonic, but natural. You're listening to SASS. Starseeds, Angels, Savant Syndrome. Coming up next, I got something special for you. A little recording I took of the event 201. Because I was there. Dun, dun, dun. No, I'm kidding. No, um, I just recorded it off of YouTube. But, it's really interesting to hear. I would love it if you listen up. It might be a little loud, so you might want to take out your headphones if they're in your ear, or just turn it down. But it's probably a little bit loud. Thank you for listening. Two. 
our audience here in New York, as well as our larger virtual audience participating online today. The goal of the Event 201 exercise is to illustrate the potential consequences of a pandemic and the kinds of societal and economic challenges it would pose. The scenario also highlights the very critical role that global business and public-private partnerships play in preparing for and responding to pandemics. Today's scenario is going to simulate meetings of a multi-stakeholder group called the Pandemic Emergency Board. This board has been urgently convened for them, and Johns Hopkins has been asked to moderate the board meetings and provide expertise during the board's deliberations. The mission of the Pandemic Emergency Board is to provide recommendations to deal with the major global challenges arising in response to an unfolding pandemic. The board is comprised of highly experienced leaders from business, public health, and civil society. The board's decision makers in national governments, global business, and international organizations. In this scenario, Tom Inglesby, the director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, will be chairing the board and serving as the moderator for its discussions. Today's exercise will simulate four meetings of the Pandemic Emergency Board, and each meeting will be devoted to one key topic. Each meeting will start with a video and a briefing that will provide the information needed for the board members to engage. Please note, this is not a test of any particular person, organization, or nation. The participants are all playing as themselves. That is, senior business executives, NGO leaders, and government officials. They're not expected to be pandemic experts. We've really asked them to participate based on their own expertise and their best professional judgment. With the exception of Tom Minglesby, none of the participants know any of the details about how the exercise will unfold. The Event 201 scenario is fictional, but it's based on public health principles, epidemiologic modeling, and assessment of past outbreaks. In other words, we've created a pandemic that could realistically occur. And for those interested in our assumptions, we'll have a lot of the background research of the scenario publicly available on our Event 201 website at the conclusion of the exercise. The policy discussions, the challenges to be discussed in this exercise represent controversial high stakes issues that would require high level input from business and government leaders. So just a few housekeeping notes before we get started. For our in-person audience, please do silence all your electronic devices. driven by many, many factors, mainly uh, through human behavior, economic uh, development, uh, population density, uh, and many others. The scenario you will be presented with this morning could easily become one <clears throat> a shared reality uh, one day.